film listeners, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome back to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. This is the very first episode I am releasing in 2023. I hope you guys had a wonderful new year and a fantastic January. I know I did. I'm so excited to be diving back into this show full force with you. Today is a very special diary entry, but before I get to it, as always... If you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. So today, is uh, as to kick off the new year, I decided to catch you guys up on everything that I have been watching uh, throughout the month of January. So I'll be taking you through my letterbox, but I will be skipping some movies because I will also then go through my ranked list of my top 10 favorite movies of 2022. We're getting into uh, the awards season. You know, the Golden Globes happened uh, about a month ago. We're getting into the Oscars race. It's heating up. So I figured it's the perfect time to tell you guys what some of my favorite films of 2022 were. Now, I did spend a lot of time in January catching up on some films that uh, I hadn't been able to see beforehand, whether it was because of limited release schedules or it didn't come around to me until later, whatever it may be. I got caught up on a lot of stuff that I was very excited to see to get a finalized list of my favorite films of the year. And obviously, again, I haven't seen every single movie, but I saw pretty much everything that I wanted to see. Uh, from last year and have ranked it and categorized it. That list is actually on my letterbox now. It's called My 2022. So if you want to check that out, uh, it is on my account. Once again, Big Walls 21 on Letterboxd. So we'll get right into the diary entry here. So let's talk about the very first film that I watched in 2023. And it's a rewatch. It's not a movie I saw in theaters, but it is a, a rewatch at home of the 2005 biopic Capote. Now, why did I watch this? Well, this movie actually has a lot of special meaning to me because it was the first time that I recognized and saw Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, uh, you know, it's obviously one of his uh, Mount Rushmore films because it's the one he won an Oscar for. It follows the story of Truman Capote as he travels to Kansas to uh, document the story of the in cold, cold blood murders where the Cutter family uh, was murdered one night. Um, by two escaped convicts, and uh, Truman Capote starts to develop a uh, a relationship with one of them. And uh, this movie is really wonderful. It's got everything that you possibly could want in a good biopic. Um, you know, a really engaging story, interesting period piece. You know, setting. It takes place in the 1959 is when the murders took place. So late 50s, early 60s. It's got a really fantastic cast, you know, and obviously like a really great biographical performance at the center of it in Philip Seymour Hoffman and a really great script and interesting direction and everything that you could want. This is a great example of a very good biopic. And, you know, the 2000s had like a, a string of really great biopics. I mean, this is the year of Good Night and Good Luck and Walk the Line. So there were no shortage of these movies and there definitely still aren't. There definitely isn't a shortage of them now. But this one has a lot of good meaning to me because I saw it way too young. I remember when it came out and I remember seeing the trailer for it and thinking this Philip Seymour Hoffman guy was uh, an interesting presence and I was kind of uh, attracted to him in that way. And so 
Um, so I sought it out. This movie came out in 2005 when I was seven years old. I, I think I saw it like the year later, like when it was on TV. I was like eight or nine or something like that. Um, and I decided to go back to it because uh, you may remember on the last diary entry, I uh, chronicled my feelings of uh, a rewatch during the Hunger Games series. And after watching him, you know, kind of just trudge his way through those films uh, and towards the end of his life, I needed something where he was where he really shines. And this, believe it or not, was on or no, this this was not on Hulu. Excuse me. I believe this was on Amazon Prime. But uh, I wanted to watch it again because I I hadn't seen it in uh, quite a number of years, a very long time. And I mean, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was such a talent and with each rewatch, you know, I miss him more and more. And he, he's one of my all-time favorite actors. And this performance is just phenomenal. A very deserving win. Uh, I mean, he was going up against, like, Joaquin Phoenix and Walk the Line, which is another one of my favorite performances. But this is Hoffman at his best, really. I mean, he's so charismatic and interesting. I mean, he's doing this very specific voice. And it. some people may find it annoying, but I think it works really well for the character, especially because, you know, Truman Capote famously had a very interesting way of speaking. And Hoffman really carries himself throughout this movie. You know, he's incredibly intellectual. He's incredibly witty. Um, but he, like most of his performances, he, he was never afraid to be vulnerable. And he has so many moments to shine um, where he can really capture, like, and show the emotion that he's feeling in a given moment. He works so well with every other actor. Um, you know, Catherine Keener is so good in this movie. Oh my God. Like I, f- I forgot that she's in this movie, but I, I, she is just phenomenal. She's so great. It's uh, it's directed by Bennett Miller, who has not made a bad movie. He made this, he made Foxcatcher and he made uh, Moneyball. You know, Moneyball is one of the great dramas of the last 25 years. Um, Foxcatcher is a movie that I really liked, but I never want to watch again because of just how gross it makes you feel. But that's still high marks in my mind. I mean, he won the directing award at Cannes. Um, for Foxcatcher for a good reason. So I would really love if he could, you know, if he would make another movie again, because this is, you know, he captures such a great feeling of atmosphere and grime and dread. Um, And it's very, it's a somber work. I guess maybe dread is too harsh, but it's very somber. It's very melancholic, his films, you know. Um, And even in something like Moneyball, which is a lot more entertaining and, and fun, there is still this kind of aging, dying feeling to it that is so interesting to watch the only thing that i will say about this movie that pissed me off and it's not even really about like the movie itself but the uh the amazon prime streams are truly awful like the hunger games and this i watched on amazon prime and like the the high the quality of the video was so bad like there's no reason for amazon to have shitty video quality okay no reason whatsoever and I was just shocked at how, not laggy, but how like low res some of the scenes looked, especially some of the darker stuff. And you can see the loss of information and how pixelated some things look. The same goes for the Hunger Games movies. It's just like, these are things that are drawing people to your services. You have all the Hunger Games movies. Make the streams good. Like I, It was so frustrating. Um, but the more I've sat on this movie, the more I uh, realized I really enjoy it. And it makes me, again, just miss... Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I really start to have appreciated his body of work more and more and more over the years, even though I've loved him ever since I really started getting into films and filmmaking. This is a great movie. Four and a half stars. Gave it the like. Great way to start the new year. 
On January 4th, I did a double feature up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, I uh, One of the films I will not be talking about because I will mention it on my uh, best of the year list uh, very soon. But the first film that I saw was Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Uh, this is the uh, film starring Brendan Fraser where he plays an obese man trying to reconnect with his daughter in the latter stage of his life. I was very excited for this movie. Darren Aronofsky is one of my absolute favorite directors. He's, he's a hero of mine. I love all of his movies. Um, even movies that I don't um, didn't connect to as much, I still found interesting. Like I, I haven't seen Noah since I saw it in theaters, but I thought it had some interesting ideas to it, and I, I'd be interested to uh, go back and revisit it. But The Wrestler, Black Swan, Pie, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Mother... You know, these are all top-notch movies, and so whenever he puts out a new movie, I'm incredibly excited, and obviously, you know, Brendan Fraser, this is a comeback for him, and Aronofsky is no stranger to also, you know, giving artists a comeback in that way, so I was incredibly excited to see it, and I walked out of the theater being uh, satisfied, I would say. I, I enjoyed this movie, like, quite a bit overall, honestly. I, I gave it three and a half stars, which is a bit, a little bit more generous than, um, I'm, I, since I've sat on it, I would probably give it, like, 3.25, but... Three and a half is still good. Um, the performances across the board are all fantastic. Sadie Sink and Hung Chow are also in this movie, and they're very good. Sadie Sink has kind of had um, some divisive uh, opinions about her performance because her character is so abrasive, but I think she's really up to the challenge, and you know she's unequivocally the uh, most promising actor on Stranger Things right now. You know, we said that about Millie Bobby Brown back in like seasons one and two, and she's done, you know, what she's done with her career, I think is not as interesting as what Sadie Sink is probably going to do with her career. So give me more of her. Hong Chow, also really fantastic. I love that she's doing more work. And she, you know, she's got this. She did the menu this year. Um, it's really great to see her bounce back after downsizing. Um, and of course, you know, Brendan Fraser, you know, I, uh, he's just so magnificent in this movie. He has so much heart, and it's such a vulnerable performance, and it's such a limiting performance because the movie itself takes place entirely in his apartment. You know, he has to. He was wearing a fat suit. He has mobility issues. He can't. You know, he only stays in a couple rooms in his house. Um, there's only so many ways he can get around. So it's 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 clearly very challenging and taxing. But he was up to the challenge. He was so. Um, lovable to watch, and I really enjoyed watching him interact with um, all of the characters in the movie. Um, the movie itself, I think, you know, has gotten a lot of marks of, you know, since it's a Darren Aronofsky movie, certain things are to be expected, and the fact that this movie is very limited in terms of its space, like I said, it takes place entirely in Charlie, Brendan Fraser's character, his apartment. It is uh, attempting to be a much more um, humanistic and uh, hopeful story in a way. You know, a lot of themes in the movie are like honesty and being true to yourself and how wonderful people are. And those are not themes that I normally associate with Darren Aronofsky. You know, movies that are essentially plays have never bothered me. So I was able to at least give myself over to that. I definitely wish there was more to be desired, like in terms of a Darren Aronofsky movie. Like he is so good at making you feel just like uncomfortable and really broken down and beaten and that's not really the point of the story although I myself find uh that I uh get incredibly uncomfortable and squeamish when it comes to excess especially gluttony and there are a couple scenes in this movie that just make me um shiver and so that feeling in and of itself is very reminiscent of other Aronofsky films but it's not the same you know there's still something to be desired um really uh I think the main desire element comes with the ending 
because I found myself engaged in the story and I enjoyed the emotions on screen and I was interested in how the drama was going to unfold. Um, I didn't have as like strong of like an emotional response as I think a lot of people have. Like I didn't cry during this movie, but I was very interested and engaged. Um, I just think that the ending isn't as thematically earning as it thinks that it is. Uh, this movie was adapted from a, a stage play and the, the playwright who wrote the, the playwright uh, adapted the play into a screenplay. So he wrote it and Aronofsky directed it. Um, and I can see how the ending of the film is translated from something that would happen on screen. That being said, though, it feels a bit abrupt in that way uh, on screen. I, I wish there was almost like there it could have been like one more, maybe like two minute scene of this kind of of like an epilogue, maybe or something to feel a little bit more of a resolve because the ending itself felt like it was the climax and then it was going to do the rising, uh, the falling action, excuse me, and then go into the resolution for, and you could have done it with at least one more scene for, you know, like just two minutes or something like that. <laughs> so there was definitely more to be desired with this film for me. Um, but that being said, I would, uh, I would not call this a bad movie under any circumstance. I still very much enjoyed myself. I, I would say 3.25 stars if I could, but, um, three and a half stars I think is, um, fair. Three stars just seems a little too harsh. Um, so it's a, it's a good movie. I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with all of the accolades that Frazier is getting, you know, if he does win the Oscar, I think it'd be, um, I would be totally fine with that, even though I would probably be rooting for Colin Farrell for the Banshees of Inisherin. You know, I, I'm very much enjoying the Frazier comeback. So I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Um, so it's a good movie. I'm glad to have, uh, finally seen it and crossed off the list. Um, and then, like I said, I did another, uh, film with that, uh, that day, but I will save that for when we're talking about my top 10. So then on uh, January 6th, I uh, settled in for a, a new watch of an older film. Now, my buddy Kevin Shaheen lent me his Criterion Blu-ray for Double Indemnity. This is a classic film noir. Some may say like the ultimate film noir of the 40s, came out in 1941, directed by Billy Wilder, written by him and Raymond Chandler. Classic film noir all about uh, an uh, insurance rep who falls in love with the wife of a uh, of a rich man, and they start a plot to kill him and collect uh, the insurance payment uh, from his death. And this, uh, I'm always a big fan of crossing off a classic off the list. And I, you know, this is so beloved, um, and I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I it took me a little bit to get into it. I think the first thirty minutes, I was like, okay, where is this going? And any noir, you know, you kind of have to expect things to be a bit confusing. This has a lot of technical jargon, like relating to um, insurance and policies and things like that. So it can be very, um, you know, jargon latent. But once the scheme starts to unfold and the pacing starts to pick up, I was incredibly interested. I thought the performances across the board were all fantastic, particularly Barbara Stanwyck was so good. I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, and it was, um, you know, that's a well-deserving nomination. The script by, you know, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, you know, a match made in heaven, honestly. Um, the, the cinematography, it looks really good. I was just, I had a really good time watching this. I give it four stars. Um, it's a really good movie. What it reminded me of is it reminded me of, like, an, uh, you know, older films that really ask you to pay attention. Right. There's a lot happening in this movie um, and it, it, it is uh, it never stops. It just keeps going. 
So you really have to be locked into the story in order to pick up every single thing. And while there are, you know, some old timey story um, moments where um, characters will update you and give you, you know, their thoughts about like what has been happening in the plot, uh, it still can be easy to get lost in because it's so uh, dense and rich. The text is. Um, so I wouldn't say I was necessarily blown away by it, but I was very much like, oh, I understand why people like this, and I really liked it too. So I think four stars is um, is an appropriate rating for me. I uh, would love to watch more Billy Wilder films. I've only seen this and uh, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, which I thought was just a phenomenal movie, and I love the noir genre, and I'm making a noir short film right now. That's part of the reason why I um, watched this, because um, it's one of Kevin's favorites, and I thought that you know, watching it the day we started shooting would put me into like a good a good headspace, and uh, you know, give me some uh, positive vibes to go into shooting with. Uh, I did another double feature on January seventh, one of which I will talk about in my uh, favorites of the year list. Um, but the second one I watched was This Place Rules, the new HBO documentary from Andrew Callahan of No Gas No Breaks and now Channel Five fame, all about the January sixth. Capital insurrection and you know Andrew Callahan bringing his uh you know do it yourself gonzo very uh revealing and naturalistic journalism techniques to this unbelievably hellish real event that happened. Before I get into my review of this movie, I should mention I recorded this before the allegations came out against uh, Andrew Callahan and he responded to them. So I just wanted to record this section here saying that obviously I do not condone the behavior of Andrew Callahan. Obviously, it's very disappointing and uh, awful what he's being uh, accused of. And I hope the victims can find uh, some some safety and some closure in speaking out. You know, it's it's just incredibly disappointing. As I, I mentioned, that I was a, a big fan of his work, and this is uh, just really really gross behavior. Uh, that being said, I still wanted to record my thoughts on the film uh, because I want to be you know thorough. Uh, but I wanted to just acknowledge and uh, mention my thoughts on the allegations. Uh, anyway, on with the review. You know, if you've seen any of his work, you kind of know what to expect when going into this movie. I mean, he is interviewing a lot of QAnon people and a lot of right-wing supporters, a couple left-wing supporters, but mainly right-wing, and um, talking about all of the events that led up to the Capitol riots, um, starting in about, like, mid-2020, I want to say, you know, leading, uh, you know, going through the 2020 election and then the results of that and then obviously the uh the riots itself and it's it's always interesting to watch uh him just allow his subjects to be so open and vulnerable and just let their thoughts you know run free he's not um judgmental in his approach but in his you know uh when he pieces the footage together and he uh is coming to conclusions he obviously has to um, put his own thoughts and ideas into it. His claims, like I think, are for the most part like pretty general. Um, but in that sense, I find them very agreeable. You know, I, I I agree with pretty much everything he's saying, and uh, it's also just a very entertaining movie. Uh, on top of being obviously frightening, because you know these left these you know this extreme the extremist mentality and 
the conspiracy theorists and the QAnon and, you know, all of that that led to this event is truly terrifying and obviously has not really gone away. Um, but the way that he details it and the way that he edits it and puts it all together is incredibly entertaining. I had such a great time watching it, even though it is of, um, you know, I tend to go to movies for escapism. Documentaries I go to, like, kind of find, you know, obviously the, you know, a real story and this one being set in politics, you know, it's even harder to get away from the real world. So, um, but I get, if you give yourself over to this, I, you know, you, you, it's very possible to have a great time. And I definitely had a really good time. I hope he keeps making content like this. I would love if he made another movie. So I gave this movie four stars. I gave it the like, it's a very good documentary. It's on HBO max now. Uh, check it out if you're interested. That was actually the start of a, um, of a series of documentaries, uh, that I watched. Uh, so after this place rules, I watched three documentaries um, and, uh, I'm actually going to switch, uh, flip-flop my two entries of, from January 11th and 12th, just to do like these three documentaries in a row. And I'll, the 11th is a, is a fictional film. I wanted to rewatch a documentary, uh, when I was on Amazon prime again, I, uh, came across man on wire from 2008. This is James Marsh's, uh, film all about, um, Philippe Petit who strung a tightrope, uh, wire, uh, in between the two World Trade Center towers in the 70s. I saw this movie when I was like 10, like right around the time when it came out, I was like 10 or 11, and I was just blown away by it. Um, so it's it's a nostalgic favorite of my childhood. I think it is definitely the first documentary that I really fell in love with. I remember seeing this and Grizzly Man around the same time, and I, I talked about Grizzly Man on a, on a previous diary entry, um, which is a, a, also an, just an incredible documentary. This one doesn't hold up as well. I think like it's it's still really great, um, but it was not as, you know, emotionally resonant as some other documentaries I've seen it in particularly, you know, Grizzly Man. Even I wouldn't necessarily say Grizzly Man is like one of my all time favorites, but it's a really fantastic film. Um, this for me, I think because I've seen it so many times, it wasn't as, you know, there weren't parts of it that I was like, oh yeah, this part or like, oh, I'm seeing this differently. Like it was all pretty much the same in that sense. But it's still incredibly entertaining the way it tells its story. I'm not usually one who enjoys like reenactments and documentaries, but the way that they integrate those into this film is very suspenseful. It's very interesting. And I, I do feel like it is needed because, you know, you're they have archival footage mainly of the team of you know Philippe Petit and his um, and his friends who coerced this uh, this act. And that's really interesting to see. But when they're actually they obviously don't have any real footage of them stringing the wire and breaking into the building so they have to do that as reenactments and they actually do a pretty good job of like I said of integrating that um as opposed to some other films that um that I think do it in kind of a, a choppy way there's another film I can't remember what it was called but it's Christmas film all about the uh, USC college scandal college admission scandal um that does reenactments based on real phone calls um and that's an interesting idea but it feels very awkward whereas this feels very fluid because i think because a they're not talking there's no dialogue in the reenactments it's all visual um while having the testimonials over it so i think it just fits way you know way better into it but the real strong suit of this movie is the uh when they're detailing the act itself um and it's so beautiful and just a very you know, it's it's breathtaking to watch, and the way that the the music is incorporated into the the photos, it's all done like through photography, and you know, pairing that with the testimonials is is incredibly effective. Um, and I, I find that 
you know, this movie itself feels like a real movie, you know, and I think that's why it kind of remains a, a, a personal fave um, because, you know, and then Robert Zemeckis made The Walk, you know, that movie in like 2015 or something like that starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which was a dramatization of, of this uh, story. And I just found that so unnecessary because this movie already feels like a complete narrative. You know, it's not just people giving information. It, like, does a great job of raising tension and feeling as though it's a three-act structure um, or just having some form of structure to begin with. Um, and it's it's really great in that way. So it's I wouldn't. it was my favorite documentary for a very long time. I wouldn't say that now. I, I don't even know, like, off the top of my head what my favorite documentary would be. But um, this one's still really great. I gave it four stars. I gave it the like. It was really great to return to. And I mean, I, I love watching Philippe Petit. He's such a, a wonderfully unique individual. And his views on life and the way that he tells stories, he's just so interesting and fun. Um, and his friends all have interesting perspectives. Like, there isn't really, uh, I think one of the reasons why I think I did, didn't get a lot um as big of an emotional response out of this movie, or at least for most of the movie until the end, is because there isn't as much like conflict and testimonials and there isn't, um, the story itself is pretty straightforward. All of, um, you know, everyone involved is just telling the story, how it happened and everyone's story seems to match up. You know, there isn't, uh, any question about who was right or who was wrong or any big picture questions like that. I mean, for the most part, the movie is just trying to, you know, ask you to give yourself over to, um, you know, this man and, and his dream and you do. It's it's incredibly effective in that way. But I have enjoyed more documentaries that have had more of a conflict, like a tug and a pull um, between some kind of force. Because even in the end of this movie, like when he because he's clearly you know he's breaking so many laws um, by doing this. You know, there isn't really any backlash. Everyone is he's pretty much accepted. And he was let off like so easily with like a very, 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 very light punishment, whereas his friends had much more uh, stricter punishments. Um but this is mainly a movie about like one specific unique moment in time and an examination of that. And I really enjoy that. And so overall, it's a it's a great movie. Like I said, four stars gave it the like was great to revisit it. The next one that I uh, rewatched was uh, the uh, Noah Baumbach um, documentary De Palma, all about the new Hollywood director, Brian De Palma, detailing his career and every film that he worked on and uh, getting it from his perspective of the production and particular scenes and inspiration. Uh, I didn't actually get to talk much about Brian De Palma earlier on this show when I was doing my director binge of him. I mentioned on the last diary entry of rewatching Blowout. Um, but like this, he, I watched 11 of his movies earlier in the year 2022 and I was just like so struck at how quickly I attached myself to him and wanted to go through his body of work and this documentary is a really fascinating portrayal of him as an artist and what he's interested in and how he backs up, you know, what he portrays because his movies can be very divisive and they're incredibly violent and, you know, have, you know sexist in uh, a lot of ways. But he's such a fascinating character. And to see him go through his films and figure out where all of this comes from, you get this incredible portrait of a very, you know, tortured, you know, um, exhausted but a creatively gifted figure and you know he stands out among the rest of his you know new hollywood uh, movie brats of scorsese spielberg coppola george lucas all of them you know he is quite different than all of them and you know i find him incredibly interesting and so this movie is just kind of candy for me like i love 
movies like this that detail directors' careers and you get their side of um, their things. Uh, you get their side of the thing. And, you know, it's the same with, like, the Spielberg documentary, although, you know, Spielberg obviously is a much different artist than De Palma. But it was great to revisit this. This is a four-and-a-half-star film. I gave it the like. I really love it. Um, and the last of those stretch of documentaries that I watched is Senior, the film uh, from Chris Smith, the documentarian that I uh, just mentioned um, one of my favorite documentarians, he's emerged as, you know, being a, a very unique voice in the realm of nonfiction filmmaking. He has the better of the two Fire Festival documentaries. He has the one called uh, Fire, uh, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. That one's on Netflix. He also did um, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, all about Jim Carrey and uh, the making of Man on the Moon. Um, and now Senior, which is all about a portrait of Robert Downey Sr., um, as seen mostly through the eyes of him and uh, his son, who most people know, Robert Downey Jr. And this movie, I think, was, you know, sets out to be a portrait of Robert Downey Sr., who was a very prolific underground filmmaker in the 60s and 70s that a lot of people idolized, like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, who had films like Putney Swope and Greaser's Palace and Pound and is very renowned in the indie world. Uh, so you get a good sense of all of his films and his style of creativity, which is, you know, completely singular and very hard to describe. He has his own sense of humor and he's such a fascinating figure to watch. But it's also, you know, um, uh, a way for Robert Downey Jr. to reconnect with his father, you know, towards the end of his life. This is filmed mostly through, um, you know, the second half of 2019 and then all of 2020 and 2021 it's incredibly effective i mean just watching robert downey senior he's incredibly funny and is very fun to watch it's just a personality seeing his view just on you know the world and walking around new york and then his interaction with robert downey jr and how their lives and careers have been so connected ever since he was a kid obviously they have such a loving relationship and um you get a lot of insight into uh his upbringing and it's really well told. I think this is Chris Smith's best film of those uh, f four that I mentioned. Even though I do really love that Fire Festival documentary, um, I think this one is uh, much better. It's it's really quick. It's only 90 minutes. Uh, so if you're looking for something kind of quick, but also very heartfelt and interesting at the same time, I think this is a good documentary to go with because I think most of like the first half, even like the first like two thirds, you know, I think are incredibly entertaining and you learn a lot about him as an artist. You know, he takes you through his career and the people that he worked with and affected and their love for him. And then Robert Downey Jr. takes over a little bit more and, you know, tugs at your heartstrings a lot with their relationship. And it's, it's really great. I really loved watching it. So I gave that movie four stars. I gave it the like great string of documentaries here. I, I, I need, I always say I need to watch more docs new or old it's fun to cross them off the list all right the first new movie that i watched of 2023 is uh, that i went to the theaters to see is a little film called megan or mathrigan as some people have noted um this is a movie about allison williams who is a toy developer who um has to now becomes the guardian of uh her niece katie after her parents die and she develops this toy this like um android doll that talks and becomes like you know the best friend of katie and then turns demented and it's it's crazy it's a blumhouse horror sci-fi thriller that is being dropped in theaters in january and that has been in the past a recipe for disaster 
And I will be honest, this trailer looked really bad. And I was not thinking it was going to be good. I thought it was going to be stupid and just ridiculous. And so I was like, let's see if it's fun. And guess what? It is stupid and ridiculous, but it is a ton of fun. I had a blast watching this movie. It's so self-aware and not necessarily in the meta way, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's not trying to make dolls scary again, or it's not trying to um, be the next great thing. It's just trying to have a good ass time. And it succeeds at that. You know, there's some things about like certain characters that I'm like, well, I don't know about this. I don't particularly think some of the child performances are all that great, but there's nothing offensively bad in this movie. It's just a really energetic, uh, engaging time at the movies. And, you know, we need more of that. And this is an original story. And I, I appreciate that. I love horror movies. I love bad horror movies. I love good horror movies. And, you know, this is a movie that, while I don't find scary at all, it was so much fun because it was so funny at so many points. You know, I don't think it's so bad that it's good because, again, it's so self-aware and just trying to be a good time. And it succeeds at that, you know, wholeheartedly. Is it a perfect movie? No. But, like, it's, it's what you need in January. January is notoriously just a terrible terrible time for movies other than when limited release movies come in in wide but like new releases in january oh forget it so to have something that's you know original and entertaining and really funny there are some unbelievably funny moments in this movie that i i do not want to spoil for those of you who have not seen it and it's also just told in a very uh energetic way it moves really well like it was over before i knew it because i was so interested and it's not like a nail biter. It's not like, oh, what's going to happen next? Like you could pretty much figure out what's going to happen next. But it's just so freeing and fun and lighthearted and, and lighthearted in that it's not again, it's not taking itself too seriously. It's just it's a whimsical movie in that sense. And I just really enjoyed watching it. I gave it three and a half stars. I gave it the like, you know, I, I've, I think any higher than three and a half stars on, on my end would have been like too much because like I'm not trying to you know hail this as like some masterpiece. But this is a good movie. I really enjoyed this, and I hope more people check it out. A lot of people seem to be liking it. Um, just go in. Don't take it too seriously because they're not doing that either. And you will have a good time. So three and a half stars. Gave it the like. Megan, great way to start off the year. The next day on uh, the 13th of January, uh, I settled in for a rewatch of The Menu with my mom because it uh, just recently dropped on um, HBO Max. And we wanted something kind of light and fun. And we, um, well, maybe light is not the, the right word for the menu, but uh, we love watching cooking shows and stuff together. So this is kind of right up our alley. And she's a big fan of thrillers. So, uh, but she actually had no idea really what this movie was going into it. So it was a really fun experience to see her reaction to it. You may remember in a couple diary entries ago that I gave this about a 3.25. I had a really good time with it. The performances were good, but the satire element didn't fully work for me. I will say, though, this rewatch, uh, it played so much better for me. It was I had way more fun with it. I bumped it all the way up to four stars. Really fun movie. I like the satire aspect, um, and it, it, it played a lot better for me, and I felt like it was a lot more organic um, knowing what was coming next in a very strange way. Um, 
it felt like it all fit together because it was like, oh, yeah, this scene happens and then this scene happens and then this scene happens. I could see the flow a little bit better. Um, so it, it, I was surprised at how much more uh, it worked for me. I mean, you really uh, I thought also thought Nicholas Holt and Anya Taylor-Joy, I really enjoyed their performances more and thought they worked a lot better than the first time around. Uh, everything really, really worked for me uh, this time. Uh, I don't think it's like an amazing movie or anything, but it, it's a damn good time. I definitely wish I saw it, you know, in front of a crowd. Um, but getting to, you know, watch it at home with my mom, you know, it was, it was a good time and she, uh, really enjoyed it as well. So bumped that up to four stars and I gave it the like. So a nice, nice change. This is always a reminder to revisit and rewatch movies. It's very important. All right. Uh, I took a little bit of a break from watching movies for about four days that on January 17th, uh, I needed something, uh, to kind of ease my way, uh, into bed. And, uh, I wanted something somewhat short, uh, but I was, I was really excited because I was traveling the next day. Um, so I, I knew I was going to be engaged in something. So I went with, um, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon, a film that is, you know, uh, highly regarded in film schools among many directors because, you know, Kurosawa is a master and, uh, never seen it. Uh, if you're not familiar, this is a movie that chronicles the, uh, four different tellings of, uh, a rape and murder uh, of uh, a man and his wife out in the woods, and you get that story from four different points of view, and you have to ask yourself what's real, what's not real, what's the truth, what's fiction. The uh, structure has been, you know, uh, replicated many times before, most recently in The Last Duel. But this is where it all started, and as you know, I really like going back and looking through old films and seeing where... Uh, the inception of a lot of uh, these modern filmmaking techniques is, and, you know, Kurosawa, you know, everyone loves him. I've only seen uh, Throne of Blood of his movies, and I really love that film, so I was excited uh, to dive into this one, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great movie. Uh, I I found it a bit of an interesting start because I also didn't really know what the story was specifically, like who, what each side was. I, I honestly didn't know uh, any spoilers going into this movie other than the general synopsis that I just uh, described to you, and that's not even really a spoiler. That's just the, the log line of the movie. Um, but I had no idea, you know, whose side, uh, what what was involved in whose side and whatnot. So it was fun to watch it, you know, evolve organically. Uh, and it's a very well-paced movie. It uh, is acted very well. I mean, Toshio Mifune is uh, fantastic and is just a, a wonderful uh, actor to watch. I found the ending to be incredibly disturbing, uh, more disturbing than I was expecting. Uh, again, no spoilers. I mean, I, I know this movie is over 70 years old, but uh, it. Uh, I do think that if you don't know anything about this movie, go in blind because it will uh, exceed your expectations. It. Uh, I, I didn't find myself being so over. Uh, like like blown away by it like I wasn't like totally knocked out like I felt like pretty knocked out by Throne of Blood in a lot of ways but um, this one I was like oh yeah I understand why people really like this and it's deserving of that um, so it's definitely more of a, like an appreciative love but I really did enjoy it um, and like I said the ending I was just not expecting at all and it was uh, and, and it's not necessarily in like a plot twisty kind of way it's just the again because you're getting all of these different uh, points of view on a single story Obviously, there's going to be a lot of differing um, opinions, and that's what makes you know the movie so interesting. But the final point of view um, is just like so disturbing and hard to watch, and you know the the weight of the message that is 
uh, left with you is uh, really sits with you. So it was an interesting thing to kind of go to bed on. But I'm really glad I watched it. I'm glad I crossed off the list. I gave it four stars. I'm definitely excited to uh, check out more uh, Kurosawa in the future. I, I know I still have to see like Seven Samurai and Yojimbo and Hidden Fortress. There's a ton of his movies that I need to see, uh, High and Low or Akiru. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely kind of, I'm chipping away at his filmography. It's probably going to take me a little bit. I don't know if I'll do a, a full director binge yet. Um, I have I didn't watch any more of his films in this, uh, diary entry here, but I'm excited to do so. So this next string of films from January 18th through, uh, the 22nd, uh, were, uh, watched while I was, uh, spending time in Boston, visiting my friends from college, Tyler and Caroline. It was really wonderful to see them again. It's been uh, since the before the pandemic since I had seen them in person, but I've kept in touch with them, and it was just wonderful to uh, you know get away for a little bit. And we watched a lot of very interesting movies. It's a wide range of, uh, of cinema here, uh, and a little bit uh, a couple like interesting you know carryover themes uh, in some of these films. But um, let's let's just dive right in. The first night uh, that I got there, uh, we found Wreck Two on Amazon Prime, I believe. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I think it was Amazon Prime. Uh, and we were both really excited because we both really love the first film. It's a really engaging found footage horror movie that is truly terrifying. Like, it is honestly, like, one of the scariest movies I've seen. It's so effective. And I had heard a lot of people like Wreck 2 almost equally as much. So I was, like, really excited to see this. But you couldn't find this movie on any streaming service, like really anywhere for a very long time. And uh, I had seen like Wreck 3 was somewhere and that um, the quarantine sequel, like Terminal, I think is what it's called. It was uh, somewhere, but I could never find this. And when we came across this, this was just that it was on Amazon Prime. We were just like, yes, this is what we're going to watch. It's pretty much like right where the first film left off, just from um, another perspective. As I said, this is from the point of view of a SWAT team who are going inside to examine what happened. Um, after the events of the first film, still found footage, still very tension filled, a lot of obviously a lot of one takes, a lot of crazy, gory imagery. But I, I got to be completely honest, I found this movie to be top to bottom terrible. I was shocked at how bad I thought this movie was. It any type of um, horror movie like this where you have the first one that is like, you know, a good uh, uh, a very successful story uh, and really captures like the greatness of the genre and, you know, what can really be done with these, with those limitations. And then in the second one, I always feel like they have to, you know, kind of up the myth, the mythos a little bit. And so with this one, you get a lot more backstory and understanding of what this virus is and the, the creature in the penthouse from the first film you get a lot more insight into that, and I always find that to be kind of useless. That's never been something I'm totally interested in, especially when it takes on kind of the supernatural element. Like, this one has a lot about, like, demonic possession and um, it not being a virus, and, and it overcomplicates things, and it, and it makes it way less interesting and scary, and I can't take it seriously Whereas the first one, you know, it felt like a real threat. Like, yes, they're turning into these like zombies, um, but it felt like a viral infection. It kind of felt like um, 28 Days Later in, uh, in a lot of ways. But this one, they turn it into much more of a like last exorcism 2010s found footage bullshit. 
And I was just like, I was shocked at how much of a tailspin this, you know, this, the story took. And to continue uh, what I was saying earlier, but uh, the the stream on Amazon Prime was terrible, and it also doesn't help. You know, found footage it automatically you know doesn't look great, so it just it just looked bad. The story was bad. Uh, like everything was so much less interesting. It tries to do this dueling perspectives of the same event. It honestly makes the movie even more confusing. And especially when they show you the other perspective of this uh, other group that is also in uh, the building at the same time. The characters are just like so annoying and dumb and frustrating. And I, I, I hate harping on horror movies for doing that, of having characters that, you know, make dumb decisions, because I feel like that criticism is kind of moot at this point. But there are some decisions made that like are just like so frustrating from a writing perspective. It's like, why? Like, I, I don't understand where this came from. This is just like awful. However, there are some hilarious moments where uh, there are some th- kills that happen that had me laughing my ass off because I wasn't expecting it. Just the look of it was so funny. It was just like so unexpected. It was it was I uh, we were dying laughing. Um, but it's like it's disappointing because like I, I wanted this to be good. I've heard so many people like everyone that I've heard that has seen this movie um, that really likes the first one also really liked this one. So I was, I was, it was very unfortunate that this just did not hold up. So I, I gave it one star. There really was not a lot of redeeming qualities uh, to this. It is really just kind of coming off the heels of the first film, which is, again, truly great. A really fantastic uh, found footage horror movie. If you haven't seen it, it's really short. It's like 70 minutes, maybe a little bit longer. So uh, if you're looking for uh, some you know, a terrible movie to watch, maybe have a couple good laughs, maybe Wreck 2 will be good, but, like, we just found this movie to be quite terrible, and uh, I expected better. So from there, uh, Tyler and I uh, decided to take in a film at his, uh, the AMC in Boston. Uh, so we we were kind of going back and forth between movies. Uh, one that I really wanted to try and get to was uh, Women Talking, um, and this was before the Oscar nominations came out, so we didn't know if it was going to get Best Picture, what it was going to get. Um, but I really heard, I'd heard a lot about it, and I figured it was kind of something like right up my alley. But we didn't think that was really the mood, so we decided to take something in that was a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. So we went with a uh, future Best Picture winner, and definitely Best Title winner, and that is Plain. <laughs> um, uh, you've probably heard a lot about this movie. Uh, it is about uh, Gerard Butler who is a pilot whose plane uh, goes down uh, in this uh, war-torn island while uh, he's carrying uh, Mike Coulter, who plays Luke Cage, who's a um, convicted felon. Uh, he's, like, arrested for murder, and they have to protect and survive uh, and keep the hostages and themselves safe from rebels uh, attacking attacking them. And uh, I wasn't, we were not expecting much from this movie. I had heard some people having fun with it. Some people were disappointed by it. I'm a bit in the middle. Uh, I definitely had uh, some, you know, there were some good times to be had, specifically at the end. There's this whole sequence with a, with a big gun that uh, is uh, really fun uh, and uh, very bloody. It's not as bloody as I was expecting it to be, um, but you know, the action itself was uh, still pretty fun. It's some good, like, stealth stuff. Uh, this is kind of like the brutal version of an Uncharted movie that I'm uh, kind of more hoping for than uh, 
than the actual Uncharted movie from last year. Um, you know, Gerard Butler's great. I, I do love uh, that they let him use his Scottish accent. My Coulter's really good. You know, he's just like jacked. Um, any kind of movie like this, you're just hoping for the action. And mostly I would say the action does deliver. I, I think like it takes a little while to get going because they got to set up all this shit. You know, this backstory with uh, Gerard Butler's character to make him more you know, likable. They talk about his daughter and his family life and all of that. Uh, and that to me is completely uninteresting. So it really takes a while to get going. Once the actual plane stuff starts happening, once, you know, it starts planing, uh, the, uh, the CGI is quite terrible. Um, and it, it takes them a while to, you know, crash the plane and kind of establish the danger. So that is like, um, a really slow moving process. They also set up certain characters that are, uh, clear hate sinks. Like you're definitely not supposed to like them, but nothing happens to them and nothing changes in their character. So I don't really know what was going on there. I thought it would have been more satisfying if, uh, something did happen to them. I think one of them may get like shot in the leg or something like that. I don't know, but there's like no real danger. Yeah. I just, I, I expected more from this, but I, we still had a good, you know, it's a, it is a good dumb time at the movies. I think it's a two and a half star film. I will say there were two people in front of us who are having the time of their lives watching this movie, you know, like, uh, gasping and, you know, really, uh, being engaged with the tension of the film. And it was, it's pretty funny so much so that when I, uh, and I got out of the movie, I went to the, uh, I went to the bathroom and I was washing my hands and that the guy who was sitting in front of us came in and, uh, d- didn't look at me. He was just kind of saying out loud, but he just went, wow, that movie was fantastic. He was just like, so enthusiastic about it. So shout out to that guy. If you're listening, good, uh, good for you for having a good time. Uh, I'm happy that, you know, you were able to find some escape in, uh, <laughs> in plain, and I, I, I was talking to Tyler about this. I always do find it interesting when you go to see a movie in a, in a theater, not in your hometown or not like not your uh, regular theater, like somewhere else. And that kind of adds a little bit of like a special experience kind of a vibe. But uh, two and a half stars. Go check it out if you like. Uh, that same day, uh, actually later that evening, we decided to watch another movie uh, and we were flipping around. Uh, not a whole lot was grabbing our attention, but uh, HBO Max has all of the Rambo movies. Uh, and neither of us other I had seen uh, Rambo Last Blood and some of that 2008 Rambo movie, um, but I hadn't seen any of the uh, original uh, ones. So went with the uh, the first film, First Blood from 1982, uh, starring uh, the man himself, Sylvester Stallone, all about uh, him playing. Uh, he's John Rambo, who is a Green Beret, I believe, from Vietnam, who uh, stumbles into this town in Oregon um and uh, the gets into a uh a really insane conflict with the local police uh led by Brian Dennehy uh and basically just you know wanders off into the wilderness to protect himself it's an insane movie but it's honestly it's a lot of fun it's really straightforward it is you know just a movie about a guy fighting off the worst cops in movie history they're just so despicable and so cartoonishly awful that, you know, you can't help but root for him. Uh, the action itself was a lot of fun. There's a really good car chase scene towards the beginning of the second act and uh, all of the, you know, the the wilder or the, the forest combat that you're again, you're going in for uh, is is really fun. It's a very straightforward movie. You really you know what you're getting. You're going to be satisfied. 
we had a great time. It was it was really great. It was really great. And so uh, we gave it I gave it three and a half stars. I gave it the like. It's not the most amazing thing ever. You know, I mean, I, I like sliced alone, but, you know, I don't think this is his best movie, uh, but I uh, had a good time with it. I would I would watch this movie again. Like, I honestly would if I if I had seen it when I was younger, like around the time when I was like really into like Die Hard. Um, I bet I would love this movie more, or have more of a relationship with it. But since this was my first time, this was the start of a relationship. Three and a half stars. And I gave it the like total 180 from that similar direct to found another found footage horror movie. I, I think this was also this was also on HBO on uh, the next day on uh, January 20th. We watched Into the Storm. Does anyone remember this movie? This is probably not. This is a found footage movie from 2014 starring Richard Armitage. Yes, the um, the guy who plays Thorin in the Hobbit movies and nothing else. And he is this teacher, I think, uh, in uh, somewhere in the Midwest and a just a giant tornado just like swoops through and destroys everything and you get to watch it. Yeah, and it was terrible. It was very, very bad. It was not good. the The biggest thing about this movie that I can say is that um, Nathan Cress from who plays Freddy and iCarly was in this movie, which was insane. And if you know, like he's the you know the tech wizard on that show, very nerdy, um, you know, geeky kid. And then here he's trying to be like the the bad boy heartthrob, you know, douchey kid kind of thing, and that just doesn't work for him. Uh, and it definitely didn't work for any of us. Uh, that being said, though, there were fire tornadoes in this movie, and that at least is deserving of a half star. That is easily the best part of this movie. The pacing of this movie is terrible. It's incredibly boring throughout the first, like, half, honestly, and then the tornado comes in, and then there's more downtime, and then the tornado comes in again, and that's uh, exciting. The ending is pretty exciting. Uh, there's also, oh, there's also the kid from, uh, Alpha. Oh, he's from Friday Night Lights, and he plays, uh, J.D. McCoy, excuse me, uh, and he was also the uh, Peter Pan in the live-action Peter Pan film from 2003, I believe. Um, so it was it was kind of funny to see him again, but he's not very good. Uh, but there were some uh, actually. Now that I think about it, there were one, there was one really funny death uh, that happens, uh, and that is filmed with the camera, um, with like the camera going up through the tornado. So that was that was actually kind of okay. Um, but this is like you know smack dab in the center of those found footage horror movies from you know 2010 which i mentioned with uh wreck this is a prime example of that of a movie that just it just doesn't work it's really dumb and it is not as interesting or tension filled as they as they think it is you know it's supposed to be kind of reminiscent of those disaster movies obviously like twister and i, I do love me some fire tornadoes don't get me wrong i do but they also kind of lose the found footage aspect at certain points like there are certain angles where it's like who's filming this right now I know they have the, like the main cast. They have two cameras, but I don't know where this other like master shot is coming from. Like I, I, I'm very confused at that. And I don't really think they fully thought that through. Um, but yeah, this this movie was stupid uh, and uh, I, I'm never going to watch it again. I don't recommend anyone watching it. It's, it's a one and a half star. Like I said, it would have been a one star if they didn't have the fire tornadoes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this was, uh, this was no good, no bueno. We did another double feature the next day on the, uh, 21st. We started off, uh, with Blue Velvet. This movie is incredible. Tyler had never seen it, so it was really fun to, uh, see, you know, him, uh, go through it with me. 
It's uh, incredibly disturbing. It's incredibly engaging. It's so weird. It's just top to bottom, like an excellent movie. It's one of my favorite Lynch's. It's probably my top three. I think it's it's underneath Mulholland Drive and uh, The Elephant Man. But this is a staple of, uh, of his filmography. I, I know a lot of people were pointing to this movie a few years ago talking about how uh, he's a conservative director. And I think people who read into it that way are just like honestly just wrong and uh, are not seeing what this movie is actually trying to tell you. Um, I mean, there are some unanswerable questions in this movie, as there are with every Lynch movie. But I think that side of the, you know, the the American, um, you know, iconography and the uh, nuclear family idea is pretty clear what this is trying to get at, I felt. Um, But nothing ever tops uh, Dennis Hopper as uh, as Frank Booth, just one of the most terrifying villains ever and such a fantastic performance. Uh, and it's just such a great movie to rewatch because it, it is people say this is Lynch's most accessible movie. I don't necessarily think that's the case. Like, I definitely think The Elephant Man is way more accessible than this movie. And I mean, I haven't seen it, but the straight story is just about a guy on a tractor. So, like, I'm sure that that's also produced by Disney. So I have a good feeling anybody can watch that. Um, but but this movie is 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 such a great crime neo-noir movie and you know the way the mystery unfolds you have this fantastic Kyle MacLachlan performance at the center of it you know him and Isabella Rossellini and of course Laura Dern you know the, the cast is just also great and it's just even though it's still got some really crazy uh imagery in there it unfolds in such a straightforward way and the story itself is so simple like when you break it down but Lynch brings his, um, you know, surrealist imagery and makes it, you know, one of like the best coming of age movies that uh, you could look for because it's, you know, you do see this young character grow into adulthood and see how, you know, terrible and disgusting the world can be. And it's just so fucking compelling. I love it. And Tyler really loved it, too. So that was great to see his um, his reaction. And, uh, you know, this is my third time seeing it I think overall and it's just like it still feels like I'm revisiting I'm seeing it for the first time you know it still felt fresh it still felt new there were things I didn't notice I really focused on the screenplay this time I think Lynch you know doesn't get enough credit for how good of a writer he is and again this story it seems as though it's incredibly simple but he is just masterfully letting it unfold and really holding your attention um, and giving you pieces of information you know where he sees it necessary it's just it's it's one of my favorites. I, I love it so so much. I, it's a four and a half star film. I gave it the like, uh, and I, I can't wait to watch it again. Now that uh, was then uh, followed up with Rambo: First Blood Part Two. This is where they start to br- lead into the idea that Rambo is much more of a super soldier because you know he has like this very particular set of skills in the first film that he's using for survival. But like it didn't need to become a franchise. And so this one is them sending him on a mission to save some people. Like I'm already forgetting the story. You know, he's sent back to Vietnam to uh, save people in this like covert mission. And so, again, leading into the super soldier idea. But my God, this was so fucking boring. Like nothing from the first movie that made the first movie fun or interesting or you know gripping was carried over 
Like, I don't understand why this became a franchise. Like, I just hadn't, I did not have fun watching this. It was just so boring, you know? And, you know, Sly Stallone, you love him, but he is asleep at the wheel in this movie. I don't think he was really expecting this to become like a full-fledged franchise, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I'm just baffled that, honestly, this became a thing because this was just so unbelievably uninteresting. I fell asleep at one point for like 10 minutes. I highly doubt that I missed anything important. But like, way to end the night on a stinker. I was just hoping that this would end, and I'm like, I've forgotten so much of it already. Uh, and so I, I kind of just kept it at a two star, uh, because rating, cause that just felt right to me. Uh, I have no intention of returning to this, but Tyler and I do plan on, uh, watching the other, uh, three films. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see where that goes. Like I said, I've only seen, I saw, I remember seeing Rambo last blood in theaters and that was an insane movie experience, but this movie was just like, ugh, so boring. I was so ready to go to bed after this. So two stars, not a good movie. The last movie uh, that we watched together while I was in Boston, we had to end on something great. You know, we, we kind of had mostly stinkers throughout this uh, this time together. So we needed to end on something great. And so uh, we decided to rewatch Gladiator, uh, Ridley Scott's film starring Russell Crowe. Best Picture winner. Remember, Best Picture winner uh, is all about uh, Russell Crowe plays uh, a general in the Roman army, Maximus Decimus Murdius, whose family and uh, children is murdered and he's sold into slavery. And he rises through the ranks as a gladiator uh, to get revenge on uh, evil Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, for uh, the murder of his family. Really great movie. Haven't seen it since I was in high school. Way better than I remember it being. I always kind of grouped this and Braveheart together, and I remember not really loving Braveheart all that much. Um, but I remember liking Gladiator, and so I was very excited to return to this. And yeah, this movie's great. Like, it's it's so entertaining, and uh, it's directed really well. Obviously, Ridley Scott, you know, the man is the man's a master. He really knows what he's doing. You know, he he brings a good sense of style and energy to the action, and it and it's not uh, it doesn't feel like Snyder like where it's like the slow, fast mo bullshit that three hundred you know kind of pioneered. You know, we it's it's a really well told story. Like the script is great. Like the dialogue is really good and. Uh, the way that the characters are engaged with the narrative was uh, is is very well told. I think a lot of people can like this. I mean, yes, again, it's very graphic and very bloody. So like if people are turned off by that, obviously maybe steer clear. But if you're if you are OK with that, I think pretty much anybody can watch this movie and enjoy it. Like, I think the story is that engaging and well told. I wouldn't say it's like one of my favorites or anything, but it's a, it's a really good movie. It's a, I think it's a four star film. I think the biggest takeaway for me though, was that like, it was just so strange that this one best picture, if you look at like the best picture nominees from that year, it won over Aaron Brockovich, Chocola, Traffic and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. To be completely honest, I haven't seen any of those other movies, but, <laughs> um, it's also it's even weirder that Russell Crowe wins Best Actor. Not that his performance is bad. He's very good. And Joaquin Phoenix is just like a fantastic villain. This was a big turn for him. Uh, but it's so 2000s. Like this movie is so 2000s where it's this medieval epic, this revenge story. And I, I, I really don't think that anyone could like rightfully call this movie like the best movie or the best performance of 2000. But like, I also don't think anyone's mad that it won those things. You know, it's not a travesty. Like, I'm sure Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a much better movie. But like, you know, this is not an offensive win. And no one is really, you know, talking this. And I do think I will say 
I do think this kind of sets up the idea that they could do something like award return of the King best picture. And you know, that obviously just slammed all of the awards and that's really fantastic. And so cool that that did that. But I think that this movie planted the seed that that could happen. And the, and the Academy Awards around that time could still pick this kind of epic crowd pleasing kind of film. Uh, and while this movie is, again, it's very graphic and uh, disturbing at points, uh, the, the story itself goes in a very traditional way. So it can be you know very crowd pleasing in that sense. And it is uh, effective. Um, so I gave this movie four stars, uh, very, uh, very excited to return to the, to it. And again, it was really great to hang out with Tyler and Caroline again. Uh, if you want to listen to Tyler uh, and I talk about movies, you can go listen to our train spotting or ice storm episodes. He's a fantastic guest. I can't wait to have him uh, back on. All right. So the next movie that I logged was the house on Telegraph Hill. So interesting thing about this movie. I started this when I was on the train from uh, Syracuse to Boston and it, I got like 20 minutes into it and then the Wi-Fi just completely shit the bed and would not let me continue it for the rest of my trip which was unfortunate because my trip was like eight hours long and I wanted to watch some movies and I just couldn't luckily like the first 20 minutes of this movie like had enough story beats that I could remember so I was able to just like I'll just wait till I'm back home and I can watch it on a TV and not be bothered uh, and that's exactly what I did this movie is about a woman who uh, returns home from uh, World War II uh, in the uh, containment camps in Belson and um, returns to uh, this house, the titular house on Telegraph Hill, uh, but is not who she says she is. This cool kind of like uh, noir, uh, big creepy house with some tension in it kind of movie. And I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I'd say like three and a half stars, probably again closer to like a 3.25, but it's a good movie. Uh, I think the story is very easy to follow. I, I liked the lead actress and uh, the arc that her character goes on. I thought the ending had um, some really good tension in it, though it does kind of leave a couple um, opportunities, kind of missed opportunities in the story. Um, but overall, I found this movie to be uh, very enjoyable, and it's got some really great black and white photography. I wasn't really wowed by this movie. I really watched it because it was directed by Robert Weiss, who's a fantastic director. Um, who also did um, the original West Side Story film uh, and the, the Haunting from 1961 uh, or 63, excuse me. And, you know, I, I love the themes of noir about like um, identity and uh, something to hide and secrets and things like that. Uh, and there are some story beats in this that you kind of have seen before in other more recent movies. And it's cool to be like, oh, this is probably where it started. Nice. Okay. Um, you know, this movie's from 1951, so there were, you know, this movie made at least a little bit of ripples. I wasn't blown away by it, didn't think it was fantastic or anything, but I enjoyed it. So I think, you know, like I said, three and a half stars, because I was feeling generous, it's probably closer to a 3.25. Good film, it's on the Criterion channel now if you want to check it out. Uh, and it's like 90 minutes, so you can really blow through it. Or you could do like what I did and, you know, start it. Uh, a week earlier and get 20 minutes into it and then finish it a week later. So however you want to do that. <laughs> uh, another double feature actually on the, on the 25th, I, uh, I watched uh, Thor love and thunder on Disney plus. Now, why did I watch this movie? You may ask, well, as tired as I am of Marvel movies and Marvel entertainment in general, we hate movies was doing a live virtual show the next day on the 26th. 
uh, all about this movie. And I felt that it was, um, you know, it was good for me to watch the movie, to contextualize the film, and instead of just going in blind. I've listened to plenty of their episodes without uh, watching the movies, and they're still just as funny. But for this, it was a special occasion. I thought, you know what, I'm going to bite the bullet, I'm going to watch this movie, and oh my god, this movie is top to bottom, butt-ass garbage. It is truly atrocious. I was just flabbergasted at some of the decisions made in this movie. To get the positives out of the way, I will say, I think Christian Bale's pretty good. I think his storyline is is fairly interesting for a villain's you know plotline in this kind of world. It honestly feels like a completely different movie. Because that's the story that you start with. You get this little prologue of him, you know, explaining his backstory and where he's where he's coming from and his place in this movie. But other than that, I mean, he's got like 10 minutes of screen time. You know, 90% of this movie is just not focused on him. And that is a real shame because the other, that, that 90%, everything else, every other decision made in this movie was awful. It's been five years since, you know, the last Thor movie, Right. So much has happened in the MCU timeline that they're like, all right, we we got to make sure people remember that Thor is cool. So they got to keep him cool. Right. And their I the MCU where the MCU is now, their idea of cool is make him stupid, make him just downright stupid because they're all humor driven. So they pack in so much humor that just does not work and is completely, you know, tone deaf compared to the rest of the movie which is this cancer drama and it also has to remind you of how Jane Foster is going to be an important character in this series but she uh, but the movie is actively like just shitting on her in the beginning that she's forgettable and she's dumb you know then we throw in a bunch of Guns and Roses music and just child armies and too much humor and it's just like what are we doing? I understand this movie is these movies are tech like more suited towards younger audiences and families at this point. But like, oh, my God, you guys got to figure out what you want to do. The problem is no one wanted to make this movie. Nobody gives a shit. Like the idea of this movie just basically being led with. All right, we're going to th- use every first idea that we had just to get something out in the theaters. It's such a weird feeling to be watching a movie like that. And it's two hours and it just goes on and on and on. And I was just like embarrassed watching that. This is like, this is to me, like I did not like Eternals. I did not like Multiverse of Madness, but like, oh my God, this to me, I'm just like, I want absolutely nothing to do with Marvel for a very long time. Yes, I understand that that's famous last words and there may be something that comes along that changes my mind. But for right now, I don't want to see anything associated with this studio. I don't give a shit about that Ant-Man movie. I don't care about that Guardians movie. I want nothing to do with this. This was just truly abysmal and i only gave it one star just for the christian bale um the christian bale stuff and that like he is really trying he's in a completely different movie he actually cares and his story could have been something somewhat interesting but it just it wasn't and this movie it looks terrible there's no reason for mcu movies to look bad at this point but they're just working their visual effects teams to death and i feel so bad for them Oh my god. It's just this movie just makes me so angry. I, I hated this movie. I really hated it. Um it is a waste of time. Do not watch this movie. I was just ugh. It's so so awful. One star. I never ever ever want to see this movie again. This is like bottom of the barrel. I thought the first Thor movie was my least favorite MCU movie. This might take the cake. This is 
just like everything wrong with this with this franchise right now like just absolutely everything uh ugh, i'm just ugh, sorry <laughs> it's just it's so bad it was really really bad so don't watch it do not support this movie just ugh. Next up, uh, like I said, a, a lot of this diary entry, I was going to try and uh, watch and rewatch the movies from 2022 to finalize um, my uh, my top 10 list. Uh, and one of those movies that I was really excited to see, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to see it in theaters because it hasn't come around me yet still, um, but it was available to rent on Amazon, so I did watch that, and that is Triangle of Sadness. Uh, this is Ruben Ostlin's Palm d'Or winning uh, first English language film all about uh, a couple uh, who goes on a luxury cruise uh, on a yacht and uh, they get into some trouble uh, with uh, the other passengers on the boat. It's pretty much all I want to say about this movie because I think going into it blind is is definitely like the best way to go about it. Um, I was really excited for this movie. I'd been hearing a lot of divisive opinions about it. A lot of people really loved it. A lot of people really did not like it. uh, And so I'm always interested in something like that. Um, and the movies that win the Palm d'Or always fascinate me and, t- and seeming like, okay, this is, you know, supposed to be the most prestigious, like top prize outside of the Oscars, you know, so what, it, what are people seeing in this? What are, what are, what is grabbing people about this? You know, Parasite famously won the Palm d'Or and then won Best Picture to 10 one, which is a movie that I didn't really like. Um, that was just kind of felt to me kind of just like crazy to be crazy. Uh, and I just did not respond to it, but a lot of people did. This one has a lot of themes about, uh, obviously, like social class and uh, the rich and the poor and the uh, the dynamics there in this contained environment. I really wanted to love this movie, but I just couldn't. And I'm not going to say like that this movie is offensive or anything, because I, I would not say that. But I, I found some decisions puzzling. You know, I, I think that all of the performances like across the board are, are pretty great. Uh, Carl is played by uh, Harris Dick, uh, Dickinson. Uh, Yaya is played by uh, Charlie Dean uh, Creek, who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, shortly before the release of this movie, which is very unfortunate. Uh, she, you know, such a, a young budding actress, and I think she really could have been seen in, in so much more. And she's she's really delightful uh, in the movie. So it was uh, quite unfortunate that uh, she passed away. Uh, a lot of people were talking about Dolly DeLeon uh, possibly getting a uh, Best Supporting Actress nomination. She's very good, and uh, you can never go wrong, obviously, with Woody Harrelson in the movie. Love the guy. Great to see him. And obviously, this movie, you know, made a big waves recently because it got a Best Picture nomination and a screenplay and directing and all of this. So I was very excited to see. You know, I love to watch as many Best Picture nominees before this, the ceremony as I possibly can. And I think that, you know, the, the second half has a lot of uh, good humor in it and I, I wish I had seen it in a theater. I, I really do. I wish I had seen it with a with a crowd, but maybe when it comes around me in a in a couple of months, maybe I uh, will take um you know see if that changes my opinion. But most of my issues with this movie like don't involve like I, I found the humor to work. Like the first act the first act has a lot more like awkward humor. The second act has a lot more like outrageous humor and um, I'm sure a lot of people have mentioned that there's a lot of vomiting in this movie. So if you get squeamish around that you may not want to check this out. I found that humor to really work for me. But where this movie falters for me is it really doesn't feel complete. You know, I I felt like the pacing and the editing was just way too wonky for me. Like most of the first act I found pretty interesting, but it meanders a bit. I felt like it could have sped things up a little bit. Um, The second act, you know, again, 
takes a while to get into it, but once the shit hits with the fan, that's when I found it really interesting. And then the third act dealing with the aftermath of shit hitting the fan was okay. That's where a lot of the, you know, the message comes in and it's really hard to miss what the movie is trying to say. Um, But the editing, like, I felt like we just kind of came into the middle of certain scenes and I didn't really understand what was going on in the larger context of the story. And I had to kind of piece it together myself. I don't mean to say I don't like when a movie does that, but for this, it made it more confusing than it was engaging. Like I was just very confused at a couple scenes and then it just kind of ends and it was just over. And I was just like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess that's a movie. Like, I don't know. Like it just, we're just kind of, I was just, I just think it's missing some things. Like there are just things on the cutting room floor that they didn't film. that I'm just like, I what? What happened here? Where? What happened? It didn't feel like a full movie to me. And that that I found incredibly disappointing, you know, and I I wanted something more focused. This movie has ideas, but it doesn't flesh them out as well as it, it thinks it is. You know, I think first act sets up a couple things, some that follow through, some that just don't. And then by the third act it's doing a couple things completely different and it doesn't even fully finish those ideas like I I was just just kind of disappointed with this movie overall like it's not a bad movie it looks good but it I was just kind of like I was really my interest was really waning in the third act towards the end and then when it was over I was just like oh that's it you know you were really holding me out on something like some kind of bombastic ending and then it just doesn't happen and i'm just like oh okay all right i guess i can say i've seen it now like i i don't know so like again i would not say this is a bad movie it just really didn't work for me overall i gave it three stars maybe seeing it in theaters will change that opinion uh maybe i'll check it out when it comes near me but like for now i would say this movie is like just just all right it's I, I three stars I think is pretty generous for what I'm feeling. Maybe my opinion will change when I see it later. Okay, with the diary entry part out of the way, we are now moving in to my list of the top 10 best or my top 10 favorite films of 2022. It uh, was a long time to uh, figure out the rankings of this list and you know to put them in an uh, arbitrary order that uh, best suited uh, my needs and uh, my feelings on all these films. I, I tried to rewatch a bunch of them if I possibly could, but I did not have time to do that. I watched a whole bunch of new ones as I've already reviewed, um, but I, I'm very excited to take you through uh, my top 10 favorites of this last year. A couple honorable mentions before we get started. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Ty West's uh, double feature of the, uh, the X horror films, but that's X and Pearl. Both really fun, really innovative movies that I'm very excited uh, to see uh, the third installment, Maxine, coming out later this year. That should be great. Another honorable mention, The Menu, which I mentioned like even got better for me on rewatch and I think will only get better with time and was just such a great uh, a great time at the movies. Next honorable mention is for Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, Ryan Johnson's follow-up to his 2019 film. Such a great time, so funny. Such a worthy sequel really justified its existence. It makes me excited to see what else they're going to do with the character of Benoit Blanc and this series in general. Uh, I really love Ryan Johnson, and I can't wait to see what he does next. 
And the final honorable mention is uh, probably my favorite comedy of the year, a film that I saw under uh, some pretty stressful circumstances, and uh, it just alleviated any tension or stress that I needed and just reminded me to have a good time in the in the movies, and that was Jackass Forever. Um, I'm a huge Jackass fan, and uh, this was the movie that uh, it was everything that I wanted it to be, you know, as, as a diehard fans of the, the movies more so than the show. Uh, this was, you know, just a, a worthy legacy sequel that uh, really ended everything very well. I mean, not that the Jackass, you know, franchise is bent on story, but this movie just gave me everything that I wanted. And I was just so enthralled and excited watching uh, it through. So those are my honorable mentions. Let's move right into the list, starting with number 10. This was the other movie that I saw at my double feature uh, when I saw The Whale up in Syracuse. I started with The Whale and I ended with the Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's newest film, all about this young film lover of Sammy Fableman and documenting his family throughout the years as he tries to find himself and find his artistic expression through the very difficult uh, family situation that he finds himself in. I heard a lot of people, uh, you know, singing its praises, but also a lot of people saying that it was self-masturbatory in a lot of way. Uh, I did not uh, feel that way at all. I found uh, the movie itself to be quite delightful and very a poignant reminder as to why Spielberg is one of, you know, if not the greatest living filmmaker. You know, this is a movie that reminds you about the importance of storytelling, but it's also incredibly melancholic in a, in a strange way, though I don't think it leads with that. Um, and it definitely shows the effects and the escapism of art, but also the effect that it can have on those closest to you and how it can really change people for better or for worse. Um, I don't think this movie is as um, peppy or cynical that people think that it is. I just fell head over heels in love with it. It was paced so well. The performances were all fantastic. Um, I, as of right now, you know, Spielberg would be my bet for best director um, to win at least. Um, Paul Dano, Michelle Williams, Judd Hirsch, everyone across the board is really great. And I can't wait to see what else Spielberg does in this latter part of his career. Number nine, I have The Banshees of Inisherin. I talked about this film on a diary entry a few months ago. Just a really fantastic um, friendship movie about the deterioration of a friendship from Martin McDonough. Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell give two of the best performances of the year. Colin Farrell will probably be my pick to win Best Actor at the Oscars, um, is who I would at least vote for. I still don't know if he's going to win, but he uh, gave just a, a stellar performance and, and back again with Brendan Gleeson. Carrie Condon, I think, steals the show and it really showcases Mar uh, Martin McDonough's great visual style and uh, sense of emotional language in screenwriting as you know, really bringing his abilities as a playwright to the big screen. It's just a really great movie and I can't wait to return to it again. And I got to see it with my brother, um, us being you know big fans of in Bruges, uh, it was really special to uh, to see that uh, together. So that's why it is number nine for me. And number eight, probably the biggest surprise of the year because this was not on my radar at all at the beginning of the year. And then around August, it just exploded in the film world. And my God, did it deliver. And that's Barbarian. I talked about this on a diary entry already as well. Just a really fantastic, surprising film that you cannot uh, in any way predict what's coming. And 
in such an entertaining way of bending genre and uh, messing with your expectations. And it was just an absolute delight to watch that. I found each directing choice to be completely effective. I was like on the edge of my seat the entire time. I cannot wait to watch it again. I wanted to rewatch it for this review, but unfortunately I was not able to. But my God, this movie is so great. I'm so glad that this movie got the attention that it deserved and um, put Zach Kreger on the map. I can't wait to see what his next film is. And put Justin Long in more stuff. The man is versatile. He can do so much. Put him in more stuff. He was so great in this movie. And I, I just had an absolute top to bottom blast with this movie. So Barbarian at number eight. And number seven, a movie that I feel like actually did the opposite of Barbarian, where um, people were very excited for it, leading up to it, and then when it came out, it just kind of withered away, and we're not talking about it as much, and I think that is a damn shame, because Jordan Peele's Nope is one of my favorites of the year. It is um, a a real uh, audacious movie that uh, he is taking some really big swings at, and I really love... Um, the meta-textual commentary that he's going for. I really think it's a movie about making movies and his position as a director and dealing with his um, career trajectory that um, that he's been going on for the past five years. Performances are all great. Obviously, Daniel Kaluuya. Kiki Palmer really sh- uh, showed her stuff uh, in this movie, and I was just completely blown away by her. I couldn't believe it. Incredible imagery. Like This is just something of a, a directing feat that we... We already thought that Jordan Peele couldn't top himself with his first movie, and I honestly kind of think Nope is my favorite of his three movies. Like, I really responded to this. Obviously, it's a great theater experience and gives you so much to think about while also not having meaning behind every single decision. You know, there are certain things in this movie that don't really have clear, concrete answers, and I don't think the movie as a whole fits into one single interpretation, but that's part of the fun of this movie, really, is to dissect it and to kind of break it down and to then build it back up and try and see what you respond to as an audience member and I do think this is one of those movies where a lot of different people could take different things away from it Uh, I again I really love it from the kind of auteur theory perspective of him as an artist and it also has one of the scariest scenes that I've seen in a movie in a very long time really loved Nope and I I wish we were talking about it more around this time it would have been really cool if I got some Oscar nominations or nominations of any kind but hey you can't win them all Uh, I think this movie is going to grow in estimation and age really really well over the next few years so that is why it is number seven for me and number six is a movie that I just recently watched uh, for this review because I had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to see it, and it was finally dropped on Peacock uh, just this past Friday. I really want to see it in the theater because I was totally blown away by the majesty that is Tar. Oh my god, what a magnificent movie. Uh, I was just taken back by this. It's really hard for me to kind of um, add to the conversation because this movie has been out for so long at this point and a lot of people have been talking about it but the praise is totally deserving it is a very ballsy movie and it really tests your patience as an audience member it is paced you know very slowly but intentionally you know it, it really says something that a movie starts with a 15 to 20 minute interview scene and it is so engaging and it sets up so much that to what happens in the rest of the story and is such a great starting point. And seeing this character go through this incredible career journey throughout 
this two hour and 40 minute film and you have, you know, an, an absolute a mesmerizing performance from Kate Blanchett at the, at the center of this. I really hope she wins best actor uh, or best actress. Excuse me. She has just so many scenes to shine. She's teaching a class at one point that's all in one take. And that is just like so fantastic to watch. And then there's quiet moments when you're just focusing on her face and it just says so much about what you can tell what she's thinking. I can't imagine anyone else in this role. It's so great that she's at the center of this movie. And then you also have a fantastic script from Todd Field. I know a lot of people have been talking about the visual style, like the how it's shot and how it's edited, which are both you know fantastic. But I think the screenplay is honestly the real star here. Like the script itself and the dialogue was so, it was very wordy and dense, but it felt so organic between the characters. And it was so clearly timed out in such a way that um, to make it feel natural and it, and it succeeds. But there's so many great lines, the language that is used in, in like in conversation. It, like I, I was I was blown away by it. I couldn't believe it. And obviously the sound design and the music and just how it is all incorporated into the story and um, seeing the kind of behind the scenes of this world that you wouldn't normally uh, expect to be as, you know, uh, riveting in a, in a film setting to fully focus on. I feel like there's so much more to pick up on on uh, multiple viewings, and I, I know for a fact I will be seeing this again. Um, maybe when it... I have a feeling that my Regal will be doing like the Best Picture nominees, so maybe I'll catch it in theaters and see how my um, feelings on it uh, change and what I pick up on the second time around, but I was just locked into the story. I really loved it. It feels like Whiplash and The Piano Teacher and Drive My Car all mixed together in three films that I, you know, if you've been listening to this show, you know I really, really love. So this was like really right up my alley, and I'm so glad I finally got to see it. Uh, And I'm really happy that a lot of people have been responding to this movie and have been really connected with it. It, This movie honestly exceeded my expectation because I didn't really know what to expect going into it other than that it was about this fictional composer and conductor and that was pretty much it i mean that's really the only like log line that you get if you look at any of the promotional material so like i had no idea what i was gonna be getting and what i got was a really inspiring two hour and 40 minute film and i got my uh number six sixth ranking on my favorites of the year list so thank you todd field and Kate blanchett and everyone involved this movie is magnificent all right, coming in at number five at the halfway mark, we have Bones and All, Luca Guadagnino's cannibalism romance road movie. Talked about this on a diary entry recently, uh, so I'll keep this one fairly short. Uh, this movie has really only grown in my estimations as I've sat with it, and I just can't get enough of the tone and the dreamlike but also wasteland-like uh, environment that these characters find themselves in. Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet give uh, fantastic performances, and there's a Mark Rylance performance in this movie that I actually liked, surprisingly. That honestly has not happened uh, in the movies that I have seen from him. So uh, that is a feat in and of itself. Uh, it's incredibly endearing. It is emotionally connective. It's really gory and gross, but such a grand adventure to go on in this incredibly strange world but you just want it to keep going i just i did not want this movie to end luca guadagnino has another film coming out later this year Uh, i believe it's called challengers it's all about tennis and i'm incredibly excited to see that and to watch more of his older work he's one of my favorite filmmakers working right now 
again, we're not really talking about this movie all that much around awards season. And I know, you know, the Oscars and the awards season doesn't mean everything. I just, I, I wish this movie was getting more notice and I hope more people get a chance to see this movie when, if it comes to streaming or something. So Bones and All is at number five. And number four is a movie that I haven't talked about. The next couple movies are movies that I haven't talked about yet, so that'll be pretty exciting. Um, the first one here at number four is Robert Eggers' The Northman, his uh, Viking revenge story uh, that was just, just bonkers, which is, it was everything that I wanted in a Robert Eggers movie that cost $90 million to make. You know, a studio gives him $90 million, be like, go, run free, please, do what you want to do. And what he does is some of the most uncomfortable and terrifying images that I've seen in a movie all year, specifically some scenes at the beginning. Um, incredible production value, fantastic story, some very weird shit, amazing performances um, from Alexander Skarsgård, Ethan Hawke, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicole Kidman, across the board, fantastic stuff. You know, Edgar's has a command of folklore storytelling with a lot of uh legend attached to them and also obviously some uh specific dialect that people can really relish in uh and that's i'm sure a great time for actors but it's really fun as an audience member too to really listen to something that you don't normally hear uh in movies but i also found this movie to be a fantastic revenge story having just rewatched as i mentioned in this uh in this review gladiator um i, I just was i was thinking about the northman a lot while i was watching that movie because I feel like the Northman is this year's Gladiator, and this movie I feel is much more violent, much more brutal than Gladiator, even though Gladiator is already very brutal. And that's not what the only reason why I think this movie is good. I, I just think that it is, in all of its effectiveness, part of it is just to show the brutality of the world and the just insanity of the culture that we're watching. I really love Robert Eggers. You know, I hope that this is only the beginning of his career. And I, I would love more movies like this, even though this one didn't do as you know financially successful and is not as regarded uh, as well as The Lighthouse. And I, I do think this is probably my least favorite of his three films between this, The Lighthouse and The Witch. But it still like clears the bar like pretty well. Like I was still incredibly satisfied with this movie. So I, uh, I applaud him for this work. And I mean, it's just such a jump for him in production value. Uh, and obviously in budget, you feel like sometimes directors, when they're given so much money to do something, they kind of get lost in that void in a way, and they, it kind of limits them. But no, he used every ounce of his potential to make this movie, and, and it shows. Like, it is dripping with creativity and, um, and imagination and just really damn good storytelling. So The Northman is absolutely a, a lock for one of my favorites of the year. Moving on to the third movie on my list is a movie I saw at the beginning of the year and uh, the beginning of 2022 rather uh, it was one of my most anticipated of last year re-watching it I actually re-watched it with This Place Rules which actually worked pretty well uh, together because both of these movies have a lot to do with crazy incel conspiracy theory nuts uh, because my number three pick is of course The Batman uh, if you know uh, listening to the show, I am a lifelong diehard Batman fan. And since the Nolan movies, we've had 10 years of these, you know, really terrible, just uh, DCU movies that just really missed the mark and have lost all of the creativity imagination that needs to be in 
a Batman story to make it work. And what the Batman did is Matt Reeves came in with Robert Pattinson and an all-star cast and said, we can still keep this prestigious. Like this can still be a prestige property. And we can put, we can get Greg Frazier to shoot the shit out of this movie. We can have people locked in for a three hour story, you know, really make it this pulsating, driving detective story that gives you such a wide sense of the world. Rewatching it, I really focused in on Bruce Wayne's uh, character arc, and it was even more clear the second time for me. It's so well laid out. It's such a well told story. And I mean, the imagery, some of the you know, all of the imagery with the Riddler, obviously the opening scene, his voice and the FaceTime call and all of that like is so terrifying and so well done and is stuff that you don't see in superhero movies. And as much as I am tired of the genre, this to me felt so good because it was like if you took away all of the setup for a sequel, which there are a couple for sure. This still stands on its own. This is a three hour contained detective epic it just like everything worked for me. Colin Farrell was fantastic as the Penguin. Paul Dano was amazing as the Riddler. I love Zoe Kravitz. I love Jeffrey Wright. Pattinson is perfect as Batman and Bruce Wayne. I'm so excited to see what they do with him uh, in the sequel. I hope they kind of transition more into the Bruce Wayne character that we um, kind of know and love in terms of like the layers of the character because a lot of people noted that uh, in this movie, he's kind of just the same character between Bruce Wayne and Batman. And I think that honestly is an intentional choice and it works for the movie. So I think in the sequel, I hope they kind of expand on that and show him growing and aging as you know time has gone by. And obviously, since he has become the beacon of hope that he uh, once believed that he should be the, you know, the uh, sign of fear. And now he is something that people can look to for uh, help and safety. So I'm very curious to see what they do. But uh, if this even if the sequel is bad, I think that this is a terrific definitive Batman story up there with The Dark Knight and uh, Batman 89 and Mask of the Phantasm because it is a continuation of the uh, the animated series in a lot of way and it is bringing that storyline to life or that world to life uh, so well and it just gave me as a fan and as a movie lover and someone who again has been so completely exhausted by superhero movies in the past you know few years it just gave me everything i wanted and i definitely will be returning to this it was so much better the second time than the first time i love this movie it is truly great all right coming in at number two this is a movie that i have been wanting to talk about for a very long time i saw it at the end of 2022 but i saw it when the last diary entry came out so i couldn't actually get it uh, on this past one and I loved it so much that I had to wait to talk to you guys about it for the top 10 list and that is Damien Chazelle's Babylon holy god <laughs> this movie I have no notes I'm sorry like <laughs> I have no problems with this movie at all uh it is bombastic it is aggressive it is overblown it is way too long it is audacious it is a love letter. It's a suicide note. It's depressing, but also energetic and fulfilling. And it was everything I wanted from this movie. And I was very scared because all of the trailers seemed like this was just going to be another like Martin Scorsese kind of ripoff movie and kind of just be bombastic for the sake of being bombastic. And that is not what this movie is. 
it is a lot. And I understand why people aren't really jiving with it. But I was locked in from the start. Damien Chazelle is throwing 100 here. And every single decision from the beginning with an elephant shitting uh, on a character to the end where the main character is in a theater watching a film. Every single decision, though incredibly extravagant and uh, abrasive, it just all worked for me. Every single story beat, every single pacing decision just totally sung for me. The performances in this movie are off the charts. Margot Robbie was really great. Brad Pitt is the best that he has been uh, in quite a while. Honestly, I might like his performance in this a little bit better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I, I, I'm not, I don't know that for sure. But he is truly terrific. Diego Calva, oh my God. God, what a breakthrough performance from him. He was truly fantastic, and I uh, want to see more from him, but him and Margot Robbie had such a compelling story together that was really great to watch, and they were such fascinating characters. It looks great. It is a complete story. Like, it's not just three hours of fucking about Hollywood doing whatever. I mean, there are some episodic feels to it, but it is all leading to this rise and fall from grace so well that... You know, I it you kind of kind of does make you wonder in a way. It's like, is could this be Damien Chazelle's last movie? I don't think that it is, but like, if it was, this would be one hell of a way to go out because he is saying a lot of things about the industry and a lot of things about movies in general and where uh, the heart and connection to the industry has gone in um, you know in the past you know several decades. Um, I don't think people should necessarily read this movie as a love letter to the 1920s. I don't think it is saying like, oh, we had it so good back then. No, I, I think this is a movie about being afraid of change and, and moving on and dying out. And that is scary no matter what period you put it in. Uh, and placing it into the most um, monumental transition of technology and storytelling uh, in the history of uh, modern media is a very poignant decision. So I don't I don't think people should read too much into it being about uh, how great the silent era was because it also doesn't paint the silent era as being a place that you necessarily want to be. It's enticing and is crazy and insane to watch. And again, I don't want to spoil anything if you haven't seen the film, but the journey that you go on in this movie, honestly heartbreaking. And I found it just emotionally devastating in a lot of ways. I was just absolutely in love with this movie. I can't wait to see it again. I love Damien Chazelle. He has not made a bad movie. Again, I understand why a lot of people don't like this movie. And that is okay. But I'm just saying that for me, I was having an absolute blast of three hours and ten minutes watching this movie. So Babylon's number two. At number one, you probably can guess what it is. If you listen to this show, or if you've listened to any movie podcast or movie top 10 list or whatever it may be, you can probably guess what my number one is going to be. It's probably the normie pick, but guess what? It's what feels true in my heart, because Top Gun Maverick is indeed my number one favorite movie of 2022. I talked about this movie twice already. Tom Cruise won. He did. This movie brought movie, movies back in the way that it needed to. He kept this movie in his pocket all through COVID, waiting for the perfect time to release it when it was safe, 
to go back to movie theaters when it could do the absolute utmost amount of business. And this movie broke all barriers that were put up in the past few years because of the pandemic. And he showed people movies are important. Movie theaters are the place to be. This is what we can do. And they're not going away anytime soon. As a lifelong devotee to the art of filmmaking, that was just so beautiful to see. And not just that, but the movie is so fucking good. Like, it's so exciting, and the action's fantastic, and it's filmed so well. Great Tom Cruise performance. Miles Teller, and Glenn Powell, and uh, Jennifer Connelly, and Val Kilmer. Like, just everyone. Top-to-bottom excellence. So the fact that this movie was as good as it was and really brought the art form of movies back in such a commanding way is really powerful and it you know proves this year to be a really great year for movies just on that alone honestly it's the normie pick you know I could have put the Batman at number one I could have put Babylon at number one but it didn't feel true in my heart to put Top Gun any less than the number one spot and I'm so happy that this movie exists and that it did what it did and that it works so well on rewatch and that it has it was it's an honestly an instant classic. I think we're going to be talking about this movie for a long time. I, I just it just makes me so happy. So those are my picks for the top 10 favorite movies of the year. Uh, I obviously did not get a chance to see everything from this year. Um, but I want to know what your guys' uh, top 10 uh, favorites are. Please, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media. Frankly, I love movies on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. A couple of updates uh, before we get out of here. One, I am moving the uh, release date for the show totally to Thursday. Uh, because uh, the past few months I've been doing diary entries out on Thursday and new episodes out on uh, standalone episodes out on Tuesday. I think it just makes more sense to keep everything out, uh, you know, just a single week from each other. So we're going to continue going weekly with half, uh, with uh, alternating back and forth between diary entries and standalone episodes. The social network episode is the next episode that will be coming out. That is on February 9th. I have put in so much work to that episode. I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. I, I did it with uh, Caroline Young and Chris Massarelli of the Snubs podcast. Uh, it was a really fantastic conversation, and it's an episode that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And in uh, at the end of the month, on the 23rd of February, we will be airing the very first episode of our next miniseries, Frankly, I Love Movies in the Real World. Lexi Cutmore and I are covering eight movies that are based on a true story. Please make sure to follow us on social media to check out all of the wonderful artwork that Rihanna Henson has done for us and to get a sneak peek into what movies we will be talking about. We'll be dropping clues a week before the episode airs so you can try and guess what movie we're going to be talking about. And let me tell you, we have a slate of movies that you guys are going to love to hear us discuss. I cannot wait. It's been really fun to record that series and it's going to be even better to get it out to you guys so you can listen to it all you want. I'm so happy to be back doing this show. I love doing it and thank you again for listening and because uh, I do it for you guys and uh, I hope you enjoyed this dire entry and I hope your new year has been wonderful in the, in the realm of movie watching and in life in general. So we got some really great stuff for you coming out. Look forward to that. Until then, 
I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Movies.